The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Mark 14, 43-52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But the But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning again, and uh, I'm so glad to be able to talk about this passage with you this morning. Um, you know, I have two boys, and um, 11 and 6, and one of the things that's been really fun lately uh, as a child from this era, is they have gotten really into sports figures from the 80s, and it has been awesome. If you're from those, that era or know anything about it, we're talking like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, like those kind of folks, you know, talking major sports heroes, and um, it's been so fun because, uh, you know, they have certain video games too where you can like be these people. In fact, my uh, youngest has uh, and, and received a gift from his uh, aunts and uncles, a Larry Bird jersey just for him that fits. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Like, it's so fun. Uh, and so we pretend to be all these figures from the 80s. One of the ones that uh, is my favorite, probably if not my most favorite of all, is Bo Jackson. Now, I don't know if you know Bo Jackson, especially with all the War Eagle Auburn people here, you probably know exactly who Bo Jackson is. Uh, Bo Jackson, they have a 30 for 30 on him, the ESPN. And uh, Bo Jackson played baseball and football, amongst other things, at Auburn. Won the Heisman Trophy. And uh, they have a thing called You Don't Know Bo. In fact, I think this 30 for 30 was so popular, uh, they actually took it off for a while and had to, decided to see if they could make money off of it. Uh, it's so good. And it really recounts uh, uh, Bo Jackson's life. So Bo was one of these people that was just a phenom, sports phenom. When he graduated from Auburn, it, he won the Heisman Trophy in football. He, went, he was uh, drafted by the Kansas City Royals to play baseball. And then later on, the Oakland Raiders, I think uh, they were still Oakland at the time, now they're Las Vegas Raiders, um, of the NFL called him and he decided, this is what he said, quote, yeah, I think I'll play football as a hobby in the off season. Dude did not even work out. He would leave baseball, go and walk. He was one of the most phenomenal athletes of all time, in my opinion, the greatest of all time. Um, and they started this campaign called Bo Knows Everything. Like he could play everything. Uh, it was kind of a joke. Until he had this major, you know, career-ending uh, uh, injury. But he, he was one of the only people 
And he is the only person in history to have ever been in both the MLB All-Star Game and the NFL Pro, Pro Bowl in the same year. Incredible athlete. But what they hype up this whole 30 for 30 as is this legendary athlete. In fact, they, they make almost cartoons like this legend of him. That they're story, They all talk about it. There's stories of him. And you see glimpses of it in his athletic feats. Like one time he catches a fly ball in the outfield, literally runs up the field wall like six, seven feet just and just runs down. People are just blown away. And they say, and they build it up, build it up, and they say he was a flash, he was great, he was amazing, and then like that he was gone. Just a few great years and then he was gone. You know, the, the, the Gospel of Mark written in, in the 50s, 60s AD was written to a group of Christians that were really suffering in Rome. And if you were a Christian deeply suffering and oppressed in an atmosphere, one of the, play, the things you really wanted was someone to come along and bring freedom, to bring you out of that oppression, bring you out from underneath that. They looked over and over to these things. And over and over, historically, there were people that came and claimed to be a Messiah, but over and over, they would have this greatness, this great flash. There would be even a surge sometime of even military victories. And then like that, they were gone. Why is this one different? Why is Jesus, why is the gospel according to Jesus Christ, as Mark begins his gospel, the good news, which is what that means, according to Jesus, different than any of these others? How does it last? Why is he a revolutionary? Why, why does it not just become a flash and then burn out? There's got to be something different about this. Jesus has to be different than just a martyr, who comes as an example, or, or more than just a mission or an ideal that we kind of take up, or it just burns out. There has to be something more to who Jesus is. And I think in this passage, we see a, a handful, that we're going to look at a handful of responses to what it really means is Jesus as a revolutionary. Is Jesus really who he says he is? And if he is, if he really is, and I, I need you to hear this, if he really is who he says he is, us sitting out here and hearing this message and then leaving, it can't, we can't leave here unchanged by that. We can't leave the same as when we came this morning. It has to be something greater. Otherwise, it really is just like anything else. A lot of greatness and then it was gone. So let's look at a few of the responses in this passage. The first of which I, I think is um, pretty obvious, and, and many of us have seen this, is, is Judas. It's kind of a, a response of, of self-promotion. In fact, Mark in his gospel, as like many others, once he talks about Judas, G, Judas, verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the 12. And then in 44, he switches it. He says, now the betrayer. He doesn't even end calling him by name. He's unwilling to even say his name after that. He wants us to know who came, but he doesn't, he wants to be, him to be identified with who he is, the betrayer. Now, many of us, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe you've heard of Judas, maybe you've heard of Judas and his accounts of him betraying Jesus in this way and selling him out for 30 pieces of silver. But I want us to think about Judas for a moment because Judas's life was that of following Jesus. He was one of the 12. He was in that inner circle. 
He performed miracles with Jesus. He healed. He proclaimed Jesus' ministry. He sat in those same places with sinners and tax collectors. All those accounts leading up to this, we see him in every single one of those. He's not away from it. And so it's easy for us to look at it and say, oh, he's a betrayer. He's just, no, no, no. It's saying he, it's easy to be on the inside and think or even act as if we are a part of that mission and not be at all. I think um, Julius Shakespeare, when he wrote a number of his plays, particularly uh, Julius Caesar, and you know the famous line, et tu Brute, you know, when Brutus uh, and, and Cassius actually take down and, and, and kill Julius Caesar in the play, but it's a famous line. But it was said that, that Shakespeare really wrote in betrayal in almost every one of his plays because he knew that the act of betrayal, the, the, the promotion, the self-promotion, that depth of heart is in every human heart. That is in every one of us, not just Judas, not just someone who we look at and say, oh, he's bad, but that there's something about all of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a famous uh, martyr himself, actually wrote and said that, that what it means to be a, a betrayer is at that moment of being willing to hand over Jesus in order to move ourselves forward. It's those places where we're willing to say, how do I gain the upper hand? Being a Christian helps me. And where do I see it? And I'll say it this way, as a supplement. How does Christianity actually become more of a supplement for my life to better it, to make it better, where I can promote myself more than I actually promote who Jesus is? That's actually what Judas did in in essence. He saw the opportunity to take the power in hand and to say, it's me. Betrayal comes easier when that thing, that be it ministry, be it anything, that thing feeds our own niche in life, that our own place in life. Betrayal comes easier to betray Jesus when we see that it can help us move forward or move some steps and we can gain power out of it. And unless we actually realize that 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 affection for that power, for something more, to, to have used Jesus as a means for our own end, rather than our relationship with him, we, we have to realize we're all the betrayer. This is why Rembrandt, in his first famous work, when he painted this actual account of Judas betraying Jesus, the face that he painted, I don't know if you know this, the face that Rembrandt actually painted on Judas was his own. Rembrandt actually painted with stencil his own face because he knew his own heart of betrayal. He knew that in himself he needed Jesus and he knew what he was capable of doing. And unless we're willing to know that when push comes to shove, what are our affections really calling us to? What is our deepest love? Is it Christ? Is it Jesus? Or is there something more that we're wanting to promote and use Jesus for our own gain? You know, the other one that comes in quickly right after is this of the, the crowds that Judas brings. Judas brings a crowd of folks with clubs and swords, and Jesus calls it out. I mean, he says it right away. Verse 43, the Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. And again, it comes out. 
Jesus says, and Jesus said to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was in the temple. What, what are you trying to pull now? And Jesus calls it out pretty quickly because it's easy to see that there's, there's some sort of missing of what Jesus means. Now, now maybe, you know, Judas had warned them and said, okay, you need to, if you're going to pursue Jesus in this way, you need to be armed. You need to be ready. And so they came out with clubs. But Jesus calls it out. What, what in the world? Why would you need to do that? Do I seem to be fighting back? It, is, is this the way? Some commentators I love said this. They said they came this way, not just by night. Maybe it was by night because the city was so full and it was, it was least path of resistance. But maybe it was more of they were intimidated. There's some sort of intimidation factor here. Something about the crowd that thought, if we bring clubs and swords, we're going to be okay. We need to make sure there's no fight put up here. Maybe they're going to put up a fight. But if you think about it, they're missing it completely. You know, uh, Judas Maccabeus was a historical figure that came actually, and I've mentioned him before. Um, he actually, similarly to Jesus, when Jesus rode in on um, Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, about 200 years before this, a man named Judas Maccabeus rode into the city a similar way. He rode back, rode into the city on the back of a horse with a sword and cleansed the temple in somewhat of a similar way, but with more force and power. In fact, when he rode in, his cry to the Jews was, fight today for your brethren, fight. And so it could have been, even in the back of their minds, is this another revolution like Judas Maccabees? Is this another guy who's coming in and he's approaching it this way? But they approach him like an insurrectionist. And it's not just the crowds, but... There's something that happens with it in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And in John's account of this, it's identified as Peter. It's actually one of the disciples. You would think, okay, maybe there's a crowd coming out, but it's not just them who are drawing swords, it's Peter. And Jesus immediately rebukes him. He says, put your sword back into place. This is from Matthew's account. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I gotta be honest. I, I would probably want to fight in the same way. But it's not just the crowds. You would think maybe they miss who Jesus is, but it's Peter once again in that crucial moment when, when push comes to shove that he has been walking with Jesus. He has been with Jesus. He's heard what are the, the characteristics of the kingdom? What are the characteristics of Jesus as king? And yet he pulls the sword to fight in that way. And who's the one who calls for peace? It's the revolution. The revolutionary himself is Jesus. He's the one that heals him. Jesus doesn't fight like other fighters. Jesus doesn't come in and say, fight for your brother. He doesn't do that. In some, one account, it says he even heals the servant's ear. You see, when we don't separate Jesus from any other kind of power grab, then what's the difference? What's the difference between any other? Th this is what Christianity has been claimed for years. As doing, It's just like anything else. It's a power grab. It's a way for us to promote ourselves. It's a way for us to protect ourselves. That's what's happening here. Self-protection. 
And yes, okay, maybe Peter was thinking, okay, I'll, you know, I want to protect Jesus at all costs. But why does Jesus proclaim to him, even rebuke him to say, this is not what it's about? And for so many of us, maybe we've grown up. I mean, we've grown up thinking that it's based on our power. We think if we fight, and C.S. Lewis talks about this beautifully in one of his one of his writings, he talks about how we reinterpret Jesus. He talks about it in screw tape letters that one of the deepest ways that sin, Satan, and, and, and the evil one wants to promote us working against Jesus is to reinterpret him and put him in our categories, to fight the ways that we think he should fight. But why is it that in every page of the Bible, that Christianity doesn't grow out of fighting, carrying the sword. It actually grows the opposite through persecution and suffering. See, what often happens is when we claim to follow Jesus, we can become self-protected. We can kind of take Jesus and reinterpret him to say, yeah, he, he's going to take up this ideal that I think. He's going to take up this and he's going to fight. And I'm going to fight and I'm going to push back. Why is it that so many people think Christianity is so offensive? It's because we take up being offensive so often. It's because we tend to think that we need to be aggressive and fight and get in faces and demand our rights instead of oftentimes thinking, what really is Jesus's revolution about? How powerful and how different is it for Jesus to say he could command a legion of angels. He held every strand of power. Nothing was out of his control. And yet, he willingly submits himself. What martyr does that? What ideal does that? Most martyrs tell us you need, to take, you need to be the example. Take up your right. Fight. Take up the sword. Fight. Jesus says no. He holds himself steady. He keeps himself there. And you know, oftentimes, and I think this is the, the, last, the last response here that's interesting, is that we take Judas and we kind of think of him as the betrayer. But really in verse 50, it says this at the very end of this, and it even describes this little strange encounter of this person running away naked. It says in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. We tend to put the onus on Judas, but every single one of them fled. It wasn't just self-promotion or self-protection. It was self-preservation. There was a desertion. They all took off. And even this, this strange quote at the end is sometimes linked to Mark himself writing, writing himself into the gospel without putting his name because of his own shame. You know, one of my top movies, top three movies of all time is Braveheart. Um, Braveheart, old movie, Mel Gibson uh, years ago, is based on a true story about William Wallace. And I think one of the reasons I loved it too is uh, there's two reasons. One is when it came out, I, I actually was 
able to go overseas and see some of these areas. The second and most important reason, this is where uh, it was in that movie where I had my first kiss with my now wife. And uh, if this tells you any of the dating of that, uh, I kissed her between the two cassette tapes. We didn't even have the DVD. So it was like, I took out the cassette tape, went over, kissed her, and then it was like, we put in the rest of the cassette tape and went on. Uh, yes, and I kissed her in Braveheart of all men. Real romantic. Um, but one of the things I love about that movie and, um, and I've read some books on William Wallace, and I don't know how the account really, I think, sure, some of it's dramatized. And, but there's, an, a, there's a, a person named Robert the Bruce who's supposedly to be the king of Scotland who finds himself in this, this very deep position of trying to preserve what he has. And his father, in the movie at least, uh, behind the scenes pulls some strings for him. And, and, and Robert the Bruce on the battlefield ends up uh, betraying him in some sense by keeping himself at a distance. And when he steps up to his father, he just has this face. And his father says, you did a good job, son. You've, you've preserved our, our lands, our titles. And he just looks at his dad with teary red eyes. He says, lands, titles, nothing. And his dad says, what are you talking about? He said, I, I lost it all there on the battlefield. He says, all, he says all men, his father says, all men betray, all lose heart. And he screams, this is one of my favorite lines, screams at the top of his lungs. He says, I don't want to lose heart. As if to say, ah, yes, I am a betrayer. I am one who is preserving my own self, but I don't want to lose heart. And he said, I will never do it again. One of the things about the gospel that's different here and so interesting is when, when it really comes down to it, it may not be the active betrayal that we take against Jesus, but it often does happen with the passive ones. It's the moments where we come to a head of something and, 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 and really when our Christianity meets something in our lives and we passively step back from being who we are in Jesus in order to just preserve just the moment. Maybe it's an awkwardness. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe it's something else. But it's something that pushes us deeply. And it would be so much for Jesus to let us go, just to let them flee and just like we do often. And so, and one of my dearest pastors growing up said it this way. He said, so it's not just those moments, it's what's called practical atheism. It's the moments where we, you downshift and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You downshift Practically, because yes, we're here, we talk about it, maybe you leave, maybe you're in the Bible, maybe you spend all sorts of, maybe you're in a, a small group, maybe you don't miss, maybe you're with the Lord Jesus much, but there are those moments where you practically brush up against something in normal life and you downshift and you're willing to step away from Jesus for a moment in order to preserve face. It's easy to do that. These are people who said, and they walked with him for years. Said, we will never leave you. And he said, you will all leave me. But guess what? It's not about them keeping heart. The difference here, and the one person in this passage whose stance is different than all the others, yes, it is Jesus. But different than any other martyr, Jesus holds their heart. 
Jesus keeps them here. Jesus is the one who fulfills this. He's the one that preserves their heart. Notice, it's not about this this whole evidence of of, of their self-preservation, but who really keeps them? It's Jesus who keeps them. It would be so easy to rely on our own resources, to rely on what we can to try and keep our relationship with Jesus. But here's the whole point of the passage is what's different about Jesus as a martyr that more than an ideal in his death or some example to follow, he's doing this for them. Not to teach them a lesson, but to be there for him, to not leave, to not run with them, but to stay put right there. To receive the kiss of betrayal, to, to stay where it would be most difficult. And this word that fits in there throughout the whole thing is the word fulfillment. In fact, in some accounts of this passage and the other gospels, it's used more than once where Jesus says, for things to be fulfilled, for things to be fulfilled. And the actual Greek word is the word plethora. And what it really means, and we know that, plethora, right? A plethora of things. But what it means in that translation is to bring to a designed end. See, here's the amazing thing. Martyrs, revolutionaries, leaders throughout history, when have they ever said something like that? In their deepest, darkest moments when they're deserted, when, when, when clubs and swords are brought to them, No other martyr, no other revolution, no other leader in history has ever said fulfilled and stayed. What's different about Jesus and why it remains is because he is not like anything else. One of my favorite books, uh, and I will say uh, from my favorite band of all time, U2. I don't know if you've read uh, Bono, uh, Interview with Bono by Mishka Isaias, somewhat of an older book, but a great one. Bono actually has a great quote about this, the great theologian Bono. When interviewed and he was pressed on his view of Jesus, he said this, look, The secular response to Christ's story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm, I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I am saying I am God incarnate. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over a half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. If you don't want to take it from me, take it from Bono. Fulfillment means that if Jesus is who he says he was, that the revolution that he brought is not like the ones we have been used to in any time in our space, in our history, and even before, or what what will come after. If that is true, then see, a martyr says, you need to live and die like me. But if you read what Jesus is saying, he said, I lived and died for you. To say it's fulfilled, it means you've been taken up in this, that the fulfillment of your heart, your life, your dreams, all of it is in there. It's completely other 
Notice all the reactions to Jesus' revolution are all self-promotion, self-protection, self-preservation. But what is Jesus? Is it anything about self? No, it's all about other. For it to be fulfilled, it meant all for you and I. No martyr can redeem. Only tell us how we need to redeem ourselves. No martyr or revolutionary outside of this can protect us. Only tell us to protect ourselves. Only, no martyr can keep us. Only say this is how you preserve yourself. Jesus was completely about us. His promotion was not for himself, but for his father and for our reconciliation to him is for redemption. It wasn't for his own protection. It was for ours. He left himself completely unprotected so that we might be. And no martyr can tell us how to preserve ourselves. The only one that could say, no hair falls from your head without the will of your father in heaven is this revolutionary Jesus. That's what makes this table radically different. This table is radically different because this is not a table of a martyr. No martyr ever set a table like this. When he gives his body and blood, it's not an example of how to live. You're not tasting the bread and the juice to say, you need to do a better job. And I want to encourage you because many of you may come and take communion and actually think, okay, I'm going to ante up. I'm going to do a better job. That's not what this table is for. It's actually a reminder of who you really are and the one that really loves you. Because different than any other revolution, this is about a relationship with you. What turns the world upside down is what he's done. To take from this table means we can't see it as a ritual. We have to see it as a reminder. What is it? A proclamation of the one who's come and died. And then we leave this table, we have to know we receive it. reminds us how we are in the Holy Spirit, in Christ himself. And we are redeemed, protected, and kept until Jesus returns. Because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. No other martyr has said that. No other revolutionary could turn the world upside down by saying that. Take, eat all of you. Do so in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured out the wine. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. When he spoke that in crowds, that forgiveness of sins, people shuddered because they couldn't believe someone had actually addressed their sins that way. But Jesus' blood has been shed for your sins so that your relationship with God is afresh and new and reconciled. No martyr has ever done that. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming you, not just me, you and I are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again.